Welcome to the Social Housing Podcast from Voicecape, the only podcast dedicated to helping social landlords build sustainable tenancies. During this series of podcasts, we'll be speaking to leaders from the social housing sector and beyond, hopefully challenging the status quo a little bit, and also stimulating discussion around how technology can be better utilised to help build sustainable tenancies. I'm your host, John Doyle, the Chief Exec and Founder of VoiceGate. social housing sector provides the highest quality homes of any of the sectors um, in the English housing economy. The quality of the homes is better than private rented, it's better than owner-occupied, believe it or not, because many older owner-occupiers are living actually in quite poor quality homes. It's the cheapest form of tenure. It's the most secure form of tenure. So on the face of it, you would have thought that it would be the absolute tenure of choice, but it's not. And I think that that goes to the heart of some of the problems that there are about trust in the sector um, from potential, potential customers. Today's guest on the Social Housing Podcast is Matthew Gardner. He's the ex-chief exec at Trafford Housing Trust and head of ideation at London and Quadrant. Obviously, he's got a wealth of experience in the sector, but not only is he known for his passion, he's also a deep thinker about the bigger issues facing the sector in general. Well, it's great to be speaking to you today, Matthew, and thanks for coming on the Social Housing Podcast. I want to cover a range of subjects, and to start off with, I wanted to ask you, why you think that despite apparently high satisfaction scores or the, the high satisfaction scores that a lot of the social landlords get, the, there's a lack of trust between Ooh. tenants and landlords. Is that something you've given much thought to? I, 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 I think you're right. Um, uh, I, I, think, I think there are a couple of things around satisfaction. I think um, sometimes we as a sector measure satisfaction against the things that we want to measure, um, as opposed to the things that actually might really make a customer satisfied. So I, so I think that our um, satisfaction scores are sometimes a little bit higher than reality. Um, <laughs> and, and, and having said that, I think that the other way of looking at satisfaction, if you look at something like um, Trustpilot, um, many housing associations actually have quite low scores on Trustpilot, and I think those are a, um, a reflection of dissatisfaction that is also a little exaggerated. I, I think there are some truths in what Trustpilot says about housing associations, but, but I don't think it's quite as bad as, a, as sometimes that picture is painted. But I think trust is a different... Satisfaction and trust are, are two different things. Um, and I, I, yeah, I, I have thought quite a lot about trust. Um, and it, it starts from this, you know, the, the social housing sector provides the highest quality homes of any of the sectors um, in the English housing economy. The quality of the homes is better than private rented, it's better than owner occupied, believe it or not, because many older owner occupiers are living actually in quite poor quality homes. It's the cheapest form of tenure. It's the most secure form of tenure. So on the face of it, you would have thought that it would be the absolute tenure of choice, but it's not. And I think that 
that goes to the heart of some of the problems that there are about trust in the sector um, from potential, potential customers. And I think it's worth examining what creates trust. Obviously, you have to be proficient at what you are doing. Um, and within that level of proficiency, you, know, you have to get the task right. And, you know, on the whole, although every housing association, and believe me, I've had my share of these, you know, occasionally drops the ball on something and sometimes quite badly. Um, on the whole, getting the, getting the product right, the task right, is, is usually quite good. Um, we're much less good at getting the customer right. And, and so the mismatch um, there when, when actually the thing that we think we're doing for the customer isn't quite the thing that the customer wants. Yeah, that's, that's a bit more of a problem. And I think sometimes we, we do fall into the trap of trying to wow people a bit too early on. Look what a great job we've done. Well, actually, it isn't quite as good as you want. But, but proficiency, I think the sector is largely proficient. Um, I think it's also largely consistent. And consistency is something else that develops trust. You need to be proficient. You need to be consistent in the way you approach things and so on. Most of the time, the policies we have are, are reasonably well implemented. But I think there are three other angles of trust where we don't come up quite so well. In the first place, it's advocacy. You trust people if they advocate for you, if you are on their side. And I think you only have to look at the cries of pain that there are from leaseholders and shared owners at the moment about the way in which the Grenfell effect is playing out on them, on the huge amounts that they're having to pay in extra insurance, the huge amounts that they're having to pay for waking watch, potentially the huge amounts they're having to pay for cladding removal and, and replacement. And I think the sector was quite slow in moving to be on those leaseholder and, and shared owners' sides around this. I mean, it's you know, for me, it's an outrage that somebody who's had nothing to do with the problem is expected to pay for it just because... And the lease says that's the case. Um, um, it, it, it morally, it, it just fails every single test. So advocating, um, being on the side of the customer is something that I think as a sector we need to learn about. I, I think also we sometimes fall a bit short on rhetoric and reality. So the integrity question is sometimes not quite what it might be. We say one thing, we actually do something slightly different. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a problem to come to, um, that we need to come to. But probably the biggest one, um, you, I don't think you can trust a black box. You can kind of accept the consequences of a black box, but unless you have transparency about what's going on inside that box, and I would go further than transparency in the social housing sector and say, unless you have radical transparency, absolute transparency about what is going on inside the organization around everything, it becomes very difficult to trust it. And, and you know, you look again, I could come back to Grenfell again, and you look at the um, machinations of some of the suppliers of materials in the inquiry that's going on at the moment and their, their complete failure to be transparent until they are absolutely required to be about what has been going on in their organisations. And it's, it's, it's a sickening and very sad story. And it's a salutary tale for us all because unless we are prepared to be transparent, 
things that go on behind the scenes will be the things that we don't want people to see. So, so I think when it comes to trust, the, the, the kind of proficiency and the consistency sides are necessary. That's where the focus of the sector is at the moment, but I don't think they're sufficient. And I think if we were to gain the trust of residents, then a whole load of stuff that currently ties us as a sector up in cost would start to fade away. Okay, you, you said radical transparency. Yeah. How, how would you go about doing that? If you were once again, chief executive of a large housing association, <laughs> I, know, I know you'd love to do that. Yeah. Radical, radical transparency, what does that look like in practical terms? Well, I think it is. Actually, it, it's about enabling technology to help you. So if, so if I was a, if I was a resident for a minute, let's put me in a different place rather than being the chief exec, I would want to know what all the building materials in my property were. I would expect to know that. I would expect to be able to go and find that. I'd expect to be able to know what all of the utility consumption in that block has been. I don't want to start treading on personal and sensitive information of people who live around me, but actually I do want to know the detail or have access to the detail of everything that is going around my tenancy. And currently I don't as a tenant and putting my chief exec's hat back on, which I'm glad to have taken off, I think. Some of that is because inside our own organizations, we don't know ourselves. Right. And that's really quite a worrying place to be. So, so I, I think that radical transparency, partly as a state of mind, you have to be prepared to share good news and bad news um, and hold your hand up to the bad news. But it's also a state of being, which is you can't be transparent unless you know yourselves. And when we've discussed before, the, the, the data that is held about properties and in some cases about tenancies within the sector, um, should we just say there's room for improvement? Yeah, I think that's a very diplomatic way of putting it, Matthew. I, was, I think is the, something else that we've discussed in the past with regards to the trust element is, as well as the transparency, there needs to be a better understanding you know, of, of the customer, of the tenant, of those tenant requirements. As you say, it can't be a one-sided, we think this will work, one size fits all. There needs to be a deeper understanding of of individual customers' requirements. In fact, it was something that was sort of noted in the white paper. I think the regulator is going to get involved in terms of feedback yeah. to make sure that landlords are more aware of individual customers, you know, diversity requirements, etc. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I, I think we've got to start looking at measuring the customer experience, not customer satisfaction. The customer experience enables us to know what it was that caused the satisfaction or the dissatisfaction and give us a, gives us a hope of having kind of in the trendy language actionable insights to enable us to A, prioritize um, and B, actually change the things that would be most impactful for customers as a group or individually. So I think that some of the stuff that's been going on in other sectors around customer experience is there for us to have a look at. I think I was unique when I was at Trafford in appointing a chief experience officer. I don't think there's been another one and it may be the only one that there will ever be in the sector. 
But the point of that role was that the person in, in post had control not only of the operational activity of the business, but they had control of the IT and the technology that was supporting it and the HR function, the people and culture function. And so what I tried to do was to pull those three bits of the organization together, always in furtherance of the customer experience. And, and I think we've, we've, we, it, it, we've got something to learn about that. Okay, just as an aside, I wondered what your thoughts are on negative feedback, because obviously at VoiceGate, we, we carry out a lot of transactional feedback for a lot of social landlords. And I've always felt quite strongly that you only tend to learn when things go wrong. Yeah. And if you get negative feedback, you should cherish it because that's where the learnings are. But I sense a lot of the time people want to brush that under the carpet. What do you think? I completely agree with you. Um, I, I think that feedback like that is a gift. You have one opportunity to turn somebody who um, was a negative in your in your you were a negative in their eyes into turning you into a positive and you put it right um and i think that you know people who get things everybody gets things wrong yeah. you know pretending that we don't is is kind of cloud cuckoo land so holding your hands up saying yeah we got that one wrong um and then learning from it and and it's not just about the particular circumstance so um oh, i'm trying to think of an example of something that might go wrong. Um, so a heat, so a, a lift was out of action for three weeks in a block of flats. Yeah, quite a significant problem. It's one thing just to fix the lift, but actually the second thing is to look and see, right, if another lift went down, how long would that one be out for? And what can we do to avoid that problem ever occurring again? And the third thing is to say, and what's like a lift? Could this happen to our boilers? Yeah, could, yeah. So it's about the, the, um, the level of analysis that is carried out on complaints, on negative feedback, that doesn't just say, have we followed our processes? Has this one been fixed? But it's, have we, have we dealt with the system issues which lay behind that particular service failure? It's quite interesting as well, something that our behavioural scientists came up with, and it's one of those things that once you know it, it seems obvious, but often a lot of the clients we deal with, it doesn't seem like it's obvious to them. And that is if a customer is dissatisfied with one thing, they're usually dissatisfied with everything. It kind of bleeds out. Their overall impression is, is a negative. Whereas a lot of social landlords deal with things very much in a silo type system and disregard dissatisfaction in some area and wonder why people are, are overall not very happy. Yeah, and, and I think that, that, that comes to one of the things that I observe now, I kind of have a chance to look back on things. Within organisations, they have a lot of knowledge about how their gas servicing is going or their reactive repairs is going. But there isn't a very well developed, and again, I think this is a bit of jargon as well, but the, the intersectionality of those things. So actually what I would want to know is how many of my tenants are completely okay? For, for, for all of those things, they're getting the repair service they want, their gas is okay, their boiler's okay, their lift's okay, you know, they're green. 
And we don't look at our services in that way. We look at a function. We don't look at a property or an estate or a region. And, and I, I can't help but think that white paper thinking, much more focus on the customer experience, would help the sector to develop metrics that say, yeah, actually, we've got 82% of all of our tenants are 100% in the clean. And then you'd know that 18% weren't, and you'd know jolly well that you needed to go and prioritise those 18% and get them back to being 100% clean. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, Matthew, I'm going to change tack a little bit now, and I wanted to sort of discuss sustainability in the social housing sector with you. And, I, and why do you think the sector is slow on the uptake? Oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. And maybe, maybe, maybe I've been slow on the uptake as well. I don't think that uh, 10 years ago, sustainability was high up the list of things that I was pushing at, at Trafford. It was by the time I um, left and we had a, a, a full kind of environmental reporting approach that was in embryonic phase, but it, it, was, it was quite hard to get at, at data, which I think is one of the reasons why it doesn't get the attention it, it deserves. It, it's also because it's a bit nebulous. You yeah. know, actually what difference can an organization the size of Trafford or even LNQ make to climate change? You know, actually can't make a lot. But I think there are some, some things that might wake the sector up a bit. So one of, one of the things I found last year was a report from the UK Green Building Council. Um, and, and it had got a statistic that I saw in it that was quite reassuring at first. It said 80% of social housing properties are generally safe from flooding in the event of climate change. And you think 80%, that's quite good. And then you flip that over and go, actually, that means one in five of social housing properties potentially are at risk of flooding if we don't meet the Paris Climate Agreement targets. That, that could be up to a million properties then. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's a million lives being quite significantly disrupted by that potential. And, you know, it might just be a handful of organizations who happen to have their properties all along riverbanks or at sea. But, but actually my guess is that the distribution would be much more universal than that. You know, there are rivers and flood areas in, in most places. So, so, I, so I think that, that just having 80% of our properties relatively safe from flooding <laughs> probably isn't quite good enough for us. Um, yeah. I think we need to know what we're gonna do with the 20% that aren't, um, and we need to do everything we can to make our properties more sustainable. And I think I'd take that in two different directions. Going back to trust, what could be more on the customer's side than engaging our customers in trying to develop a more sustainable approach? You know, we're in the position where we don't want our homes to be flooded. Trust me, they're in a position where they don't want homes to be flooded. You know, we, we have the same interests there. And it's one thing having kind of housing association voices kind of talking about this. It's another thing if you've got kind of a volume of a million or two million tenants who are actually with you on the same thing. So, so I think there's a lot more that we can do with 
residents about the whole environmental sustainability question. There's another there's another thing that I read last year, which was the the future consumer index that EY put out. I think they put it out for each of the last three years. And what this tries to do is to show what the trends are for consumers. And they've just, you know, obviously last year they were starting to look at post-COVID consumer trends. One in six consumers globally believe that actually the first thing to prioritize in building back after COVID is planetary considerations. One in six. Yeah, it was about two thirds thought affordability was the most important thing, but but a significant minority believing so. So there is a groundswell. There is definitely a groundswell, and and I I guess from the work that I did when I was at L and Q, I concluded there were three main areas, perhaps four, three three or four main areas where housing associations could do more. Firstly actually making our businesses zero carbon. And that's not zero carbon in a kind of cheating way. That is the homes that we build are zero carbon, the offices we run are zero carbon, the uh, businesses that we run become zero carbon. And and that's gonna take some time, but apparently we've got to get there by 2050. So we may as well start looking at that now. Um, I think energy uh, and possibly also water is going to become quite pricey for residents over the next 20 years. And so I think there's something to do within the sector about reducing the need for energy and reducing the the need for water. So alongside zero carbon, I'd say zero net energy for residents. Why can't we build homes now where the energy requirement is minimal or zero Mm. um, to, to run them? I'm not including people who are using energy for running cannabis farms in the roof or anything like that. You know, <laughs> normal energy consumption only, and I don't quite know how that works out. And then there's a third aspect of sustainability that I think we need to pay some attention to, and that's around emissions. So there was the coroner's case before Christmas about a child whose death has been directly attributed to traffic fumes. Yeah. Now, that wasn't because they were walking up and down the high street, that was because they lived on a high street. And, and the point at which landlords might have to have some liability for the quality of the, ho- of the air in their home may not be that far away. We already think about it in terms of damp and mold and spores, but actually there's a much wider environmental consideration than that for, for a truly sustainable home. So, so zero carbon, zero net energy uh, and zero emissions are the three tests which I would have for our new homes. Uh, retrofitting to those standards is going to be quite tricky. There is the fourth one I mentioned, which I'm not really quite so sure about, is the whole question of end of life. So at the moment, when buildings come to the end of their life, the amount of waste is huge. Um, There is some recycling, but there is virtually no reuse. Um, And a lot of it is simply waste. And and I think that if we were truly thinking about um, sustainability, we would also be thinking about how the properties that we have can be deconstructed, demounted, and elements of those upgraded, refurbished, and reused. So thinking about reuse 
is, is vital for the sustainability effort going forward. One of the reasons, there are two reasons why things don't get reused. Firstly, we don't know what most of them are. Back to my issue, we need data to yeah. tell us, yeah, this is actually, this has got asbestos in it, this hasn't, you know, um, whatever the particular issue is, we need to know what it was. But secondly, it's actually the construction techniques that will enable things to be slid in and out more easily than they are at the moment. And, and that's why I think that modern methods of construction actually could give us a huge movement forward around that whole question of waste recycling and reuse because labeling things in a factory is an awful lot easier than labeling them on site when you're constructing them from from bricks and mortar okay well it sounds to me sounds quite encouraging there matthew that you think potentially there's an opportunity for social landlords to lead from the front but yeah, yeah and, and i'm just thinking within that if we if we take that as, a, as an opportunity do you see compliance as a help or a hindrance? Oh, I'm going to go back to necessary and sufficient. So compliance, generally speaking, compliance is helpful. Um, it may not always feel like it, but um, you know, if, you, if, if compliance is set at whatever level it's set, if you don't comply, then you know, you, you're not in the game. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and it does focus attention and all of those sorts of things. So, so compliance definitely has, has its place. Um, but the trouble with compliance and having a strategy which is aimed at just complying is that that strategy will always fail unsafe. So if you don't comply, you've immediately got to the point where you don't comply. And, and that non-compliance may be a small and technical one, data breaches or whatever, or it may be a mega compliance that leads to, to tragedy. So I think we've got to get away from the view that compliance is the be all and end all here. The culture of the organization has to do the right thing over and above what compliance expects to be done. Uh, and that way, there is an integrity to what we do, back to one of the things about trust, and there is a margin for error that keeps the landlord and the organisation safe when they fail. So, so I, 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 uh, I, I'm not crying out for loads more regulation. Um, I think that in some instances, and I'd probably point to the Audit Commission, I think some of that regulation and some of that one best way thinking was a bit unhelpful. But to focus attention um, and on long-term things like sustainability, like health and safety, um, things that wouldn't ordinarily get addressed, I do think there's a, there's a place for probably more regulation than we have now. Okay, that's brilliant. That's interesting. Now, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, prop tech, but before I do, I just wanted to ask you what you think has had the biggest impact on the adoption of useful technology within the social housing sector? And it's a multiple choice question, Matthew. Is it A, detailed transformation plans? B, yep. inspired leadership? Yeah. Or C, COVID-19? Uh, I'll have a C, please. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, without needing to ask a friend, it's definitely COVID-19. And I guess there are... I mean, what COVID-19 seems to me to have done is to accelerate trends across the broader 
society that were in place but chugging along relatively slowly. All of those trends have been accelerated. And, and actually, one of the worrying things is that um, things like uh, poverty will be accelerated by this. The digital divide will be accelerated by this. And so, so actually, in, in thinking about what building back better looks like, we just need to be mindful that although COVID has helped us with transformation, it's also making the problem on the ground in need of even more transformation. Yeah. Um, so it, ha it has helped. Um, uh, and and I, I suppose this is where I think about what I wish it helped in. Um, I, and maybe there's a little bit of evidence that I'm starting to get. We have learned through COVID that issues with complexity in the lives of tenants or disruptive change in the lives of tenants are best handled by people. Um, actually, sometimes it's quite hard for technology to get to grips with those customer issues. We've all been on the wrong end of a automated phone answering system, press one for this, two for that, three for that, with a problem that needs both one, two and three. You know, and, and, and there isn't um, usually a, a choice that says immediately. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like my, when my dad was in hospital, he, had, he, was, he was old. He had lots of things that were going wrong with him at the same time, but there wasn't anybody who looked after him as a person. Yeah. There were lots of people who looked after his, his this and his that, yeah. but no, nobody ever pulled it together. So, so I think we've learned that actually pulling things together for people is best done by people informed by technology, but not by a technological interface. And, and where I think that takes me is that if we invested more in our technology into our properties, we might start to get a better return because generally speaking, our properties being inanimate objects, they are more conducive to the laws of science and rational behavior um, and therefore more amenable to technological systems that work on logic and, and rules um, than, than us mere um, fragile human beings. So you're basically telling me that my house isn't that emotional. <laughs> it's, it's not. And at the moment, the house doesn't talk very much. Um, <laughs> And, and what I want to get is our, is our houses talk um, a lot more. Okay, well, in terms of prop tech, it's, again, it's jargon, it's a term that's in the market. But I wondered if you could sort of define what you mean by that and what elements are needed for it to be effective. Okay, so, so I've, I've, got, I've got an idea about what it needs to be able to do. And I think that kind of, um, uh, that end goal is quite yeah. important in, in thinking about where we would get to. And it's the self-repairing house. So I would like to imagine that this kind of exists as a technology in, for example, the nuclear industry. I'd like to think that if something starts to go wrong in a nuclear power plant, they've got things that make it go right without the need for human intervention. So, so I think that some of this technology already exists. But, but from, a, from a property point of view, would it not be wonderful if when something happens, or even better still, when something is about to happen, the house diagnoses it, the house or the estate has a 3D printer, which is able to print. Did you know that you can 3D print over 500 substances now? 
It's not wow. just bits of extruded plastic. You know, for, you can 3D print chocolate and metal and all sorts of things. Um, leather, you can 3D print leather. When would you, why would you ever want to do that? Um, <laughs> but, but a 3D printer would create the part. You'd have a nice little group of trundling robots or drones or a mixture of the two that would move the parts to the place that needed the installation. A bit of intelligent automation would take care of putting that installation in. And then you would have an automated back office system that said, ka-ching, yes, this thing has now happened. Therefore, we will do all the payments. We will update all of our office systems. We will update the data that we have. So, so the idea of a self-repairing home is kind of the one that's driving me. Uh, and we're probably 10 years away from it, maybe. Okay. I, um, I was... Oh, sorry, sorry to crash you there, Matthew, but I was thinking, I, I, I had a question because I know this is one of your sort of um, favourite subjects and I'd written it down, the self-repairing home, science fact or science fiction. And it's somewhere between the two at the moment, it would strike me. And I wondered if there are any exponents out there, any practitioners in and around the social housing market who you sort of have identified as component parts of what might be the bigger yeah. picture. And, and, I, and I, think, I think you're right. It's the component parts here. I'm not aware of any, any place where this exists, uh, but maybe there is, I don't know. Um, I might look in South Korea, actually, if I'm <laughs> looking anywhere. Do you remember those times when we could go on planes? That was, um, yeah. So I think there are, the, the, the people who we need to come to this particular party are threefold to get to that dream of a self-repairing house the house needs to be able to communicate very effectively and very reliably and for me the only technology that there is out there that does that and which is future proof probably for the next 20 years is fiber and it, it's still a mystery to me about why when we build new houses we don't build the fiber in them in the factories it's a mystery to me why um, the fibre companies who are trying to install fibre to the home are having such difficulty in getting in and getting wayleaves to, to install it. That, that fibre is the fundamental communication tool that we as landlords need and our residents living in the properties need for homeschooling or whatever. So, so the, getting the communication layer right is, is the, the first thing that I think we need to focus on. And wireless has its place, LoRaWAN has its place, uh, 5G, 6G have its place, but but those are technologies which are still evolving. And if you want to go on the upgrade path, that 6G becomes 7G becomes 8G, you've got costs in there. Yeah. Once you, once you put fiber in, you're good for 20 years, um, and you've got very high speeds. Um, once you've got a communications layer in place, then you can start to think about what devices you hang off it. And, and the most exciting idea that I've heard of in this, um, the area of, of the devices is the kind of concept of a smart home in a box. So uh, that box could be for the entirety of the home, making it very, very smart, or it could be a compliance box. Here are the sensors and the, um, the bits of, of kit that you need to assure yourself that that home is compliant against every current bit of um, legislative or regulatory um, requirement. And it just gets delivered to the Housing Association literally in a box. And all they have to do is plug and play. Yeah, now that, that feels like quite a big step forward. Um, if we could get that kind of device, devices in a box, smart home in a box. And you can expand it. So 
you've now got a compliant home and you've got somebody in it who um, has developed a degree of medical vulnerability. So you can put a care box in the same of the same technological backbone. And then at the top of the three layers that I, I see is your data layer. All those sensors are doing is giving you data. And A, that data helps with transparency, back to one of the other yeah. things we talked about. Um, but, but it also helps no end with being able to visualize properties in a very different way. So yeah, it, was, it was a colleague of mine at Trafford um, who wrote something that, that kind of summed it up for me. And it was along the lines of, why does a Formula One pit wall, um, Formula One being fun to watch maybe, but ultimately a very rich man's plaything, why does the engineer on the pit wall have access to a digital twin of Lewis Hamilton's car with which they can run all sorts of tests about what's gonna happen if and social housing, which is absolutely fundamental to people's lives, doesn't have access to that kind of technology. So turning the data layer into a visual representation of our housing stock so that we can immediately see what the issues are for our residents. And we can immediately plot what would happen if rainfall did increase in intensity by a factor of two. Oh, whoops, yeah, these are the properties that start to get flooded. So, so there's something about the data layer giving us new tools to visualise our portfolios as a whole, not the functions that go on inside them. So those are the three, the, the three layers. And one of the other things that I've thought about is what needs to be wrapped around that. So if one of the devices that is installed is a smart lock, for example, um, you would want to be pretty certain that the lock was not able to be hacked. Yeah. yeah. This, is, this is a new <laughs> form of antisocial behaviour that we are going to invent. It's a, it's a neighbour hacking into somebody else's front door lock and deny them access. You know, you can just, you can just, you do, trust me, you do not want to be in charge of an organisation that's got that. So, so very high levels of cyber security for all of that stuff is very, very important. But it's not just cyber security. Um, physical security is needed. You need to make sure that actually the, the stuff stays where it is and doesn't get damaged or broken. You also need to know that the stuff is safe, so it's compliant. One, one of the things that I was involved with at LNQ was looking at the fiber that some companies were installing in properties. And you, know, you never know whether this is gonna be a problem or not, but they were using fire clip, uh, using cable clips that were not fire certified. Right. Yeah. So, so, so you've got to make sure everything hangs together. There has to be um, a safe physical environment, a safe cyber environment, a, a, a safety in terms of the compliance of the materials that you're using. And then the last element of safety is you don't want to be upgrading this every six months. So you need, <laughs> you need a high degree of future, future proofing in, yeah. in the technologies that you choose and the materials that you choose. But, but if you then think of it, so I think of it as, three layers of a pyramid, um, the communications layer, the device layer, the data layer, wrapped in a great big security blanket that just makes sure that all of that stays safe. Okay, so finally then, I think it's fair to say that 
there is an opportunity. If we've talked about the opportunity for social landlords to lead the way on environmental sustainability, yeah. it would strike me that that in itself is a job of work, whether it be new build or retrofit. It also seems like an opportune time to start introducing some elements of this prop tech. And the real benefit of all of that, apart from the financial impact, would be, as you said, right at the top of the, the call, top of the, the conversation, the alignment with the tenant's interests, because it's a win-win-win, surely. Com com completely agree. We are in the 21st century. We have challenges which are, mm, I suppose, not unique to our century, actually. Um, but there are significant challenges within the 21st century as we are now. We're still using 20th century thinking to address those challenges. And worse than that, we're using 15th or maybe generously 19th century tools to address it. Yeah. So, so, so I, I, I guess that, you know, 21st century challenges need 21st century thinking and 21st century tools. And 21st century thinking is about doing things together. It's not about the kind of um, the, the, the Henry Ford models of production, separation of functions, all of that kind of stuff. This, the, the, the 21st century thrives on collaboration, on sharing, on open data, and on embracing the strength of your customer base as well as the strength of your own organization. And if we can get the 21st century thinking coming along with some 21st century technology tools, then we stand a much better chance of getting at the 21st century challenges and opportunities. Well, on that note, Matthew, I'd, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the Social Housing Podcast. I'd like to think that VoiceScape will be in there with some 21st century technology. I'm sure, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you're there providing some of that 21st century thinking. So it's a marriage made in heaven. Thanks, yeah. for, thanks uh, for joining us. Really enjoyed doing it, John. So um, uh, good luck to you. If you are new to the Social Housing Podcast, please subscribe if you're listening via Apple Podcasts or leave a follow if you use Spotify. Also, please remember to leave us any feedback, good, bad or ugly, it can only help serve improvers. Finally, I'd like to thank you all for your time and attention. I appreciate that everybody's busy, but I do hope you learned something from the experience. I certainly did. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time on the Social Housing Podcast. Goodbye.